All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Keeping It Real Estate with your host, Chris Parmalou and Colin Schwartz. Mm. I am doing well today. How are you, Chris? <laughs> Mixing it up. I'm doing awesome. I'm excited for this. Well, I just want to start off like that because today is Ask Me Anything. So I figured I would ask myself the question of how mm. I was doing. And I, I, see what you did I, I made sure to answer that first off. So Smooth. let's get rolling, man. All right. So we're going to start off with our first question. Uh, I'm not going to read that question out. First of all, I want to talk about why I'm excited about this because we get questions okay. all the time and it could be like, can I sit you down for coffee or can I ask you a question on the phone or whatever? And, you know, we might give them our attention as much as we can or, but hey, look, this is how I learned probably too much. I listened to YouTube and podcasts and books for like five years and this is literally how I learned. So what better way than a rapid shotgun spray of answers to a bunch of questions. Yeah. These are going to be some more fundamental questions. You know, oftentimes we kind of gloss over the, uh, nuts and bolts of how to get things done. So I, I think some of these questions can actually be a little bit more tactical and how to, um, so yeah, I got a list of 13 questions. We could probably scroll down, probably have a couple more, but, uh, yeah, Chris, you want to you want to start us off? This yeah, one's a perfect one for you. Oh, great. I, I mean, look, I think it's important to read the question first. So first question was, uh, my question is on how to get started on the first syndicate investment and how to know if it's a good investment. Now, there's more to that question, but we should start. We, sh we could probably end it there. Um, you know, how to get started. I think that I think you should build some type of experience. I think that, uh, you know, you can't just jump into real estate or, or any realm for that matter and just start syndicating or collecting people's money to just jump into different investments. I think you should get some type of background. If that could be capital raising, it could be property management, it could be legal, accounting, something to bring to the table so that you're not just showing up to this partnership or this syndicate and not bringing some value. I think the most important thing is to make sure you either bring that value or you know who to surround yourself with, like building the right uh, team members or partners. I would say first step is to talk to a syndication attorney. Um, we use Kim Taylor at, Kim, at syndication attorneys. She's phenomenal. Um, we've worked with a few others and they've all been great to work with. Um, we we kind of hang our hat with Kim, but really what she helped the most with is that, uh, you know, sh she helped us, learn what we could and could not do. And this is actually really serious outside of the legal uh, scenario or environment. There's, there's the SEC, the Security and Exchange Commission is overseeing you as well. So it's not something you just want to hop on Google and just take a swing and try to teach yourself. You shouldn't grab legal zoom and hope you know what you're doing. Um, there are, uh, th these things are serious and the SEC is watching you. And in fact, they will randomly audit you and it's important you know what you're doing. It's nothing to be afraid of. If you have a good attorney, they'll just walk you right through it. And I certainly think the first step before you start the syndication is to talk to a syndication attorney. Um, I'm ready to jump in at any yeah. time. Okay, cool. So yeah, I, I can maybe even back it up a little bit more just since part of this question uh, has a little bit of frame of, um, I know I, I know how to invest in single families, but not quite sure about multifamily. So what that's saying is there there now is additional complexity to that. Um, so some things I have written out, and these are super basic. Do, do you have your personal financial statement set up? I assume yes, if you already have investments. Do you have all your tax returns ready? Why this is important is now your world of lending is going to open up and you're going to need to speak to multiple lenders. So are you going to need a construction loan on the project? Is this project, you know, basically kind of turnkey, but you're going to operate it and it has decent returns on it. 
um, and you're hoping through natural appreciation that you're going to refinance later. So you're going to want to have everything set up to either agency lenders like a Freddie Mac, et cetera, or you're going to be talking to your local commercial bank. Agency debt is often non-recourse. That means if the building goes into default, that they just take back the building and the equity. They don't come after you personally with its conventional lending or local banks. You're signing a personal guarantee. So if you do own default, you're going to owe whatever the property gets back, plus the, the delta in the debt on that. Now, that's those are worst case scenarios. To Chris's point, you're going to want SEC attorneys. Um, you're just going to want to have your, your tax attorneys or tax accountants. Sorry, you're going to want somebody on your accounting side because what you're going to be building into this project and the overall story of a passive investment is not only their returns, but there were what their return is or what their benefit is on the tax basis. So having somebody solidified on the front end that you can bring them this project and that they can do a tertiary overview. Um, because the next thing is you're going to want to know what bonus depreciation you could get because that's going to go into your pitch deck. All these things are incredibly important because when you say you're going to do your first syndication, my assumption is you're going to be raising capital. Well, you're going to be raising capital from people that are going to want to know the benefits of that investment. So th those are just some of the, the high level ones that I think are absolutely important to, to at least get your mind around. And once you start talking to these individuals, you'll start formulating more questions and you'll get more details. But those are some of the items that are going to help you paint the picture on the actual project. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you said that. Uh, that's something I didn't have when I first got started because I didn't need it. But that personal financial statement, the tax returns, I think that you should probably... I try to Google the Freddie Mac or Fannie Mae uh, template for a personal financial statement because if if you are syndicating or ever get debt from people like Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, you you already have their form. If you if you're not using them, if you're using a local bank, they will obviously accept the Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac form, and just continue to build on that. You know, monthly, quarterly. If your assets and debts are changing, just make sure you're updating your personal financial statement because uh, that's what the the bank wants to know. Uh, what you're bringing to the table if you're asking for debt. Uh, the second part of that question was really, you know, how do you know what's a good and bad? How do you compare it to single family, uh, multifamily? I think the blanket answer is it's the same approach. I think you need to start with what do you want the end result to be? Now, if you're buying a single family and you're the only investor, then of course the end result is whatever the heck you want it to be. So those are the metrics that you're going to want. You can invest into a, a single family um, with different investors, and then you should probably make sure whatever the end result is, is something that would entice those investors. You can formulate the investment around what your investors want. Uh, that's actually exactly what we do. Uh, if I had my choice, if I was, you know, the, our last raise, we raised a little over $10 million. We just closed a couple weeks ago. Woo, woo. It, yeah. Kudos to the whole team. Gosh, dang, that was great. Um, if I had my way, I would do no quarterly distributions uh, until we refinance the project. Now, uh, the most recent deal that probably wouldn't have worked because there's not an extremely large amount of CapEx that's needed. But the reason I say that is if you don't have to funnel distributions quarterly or annually back, uh, I'm sorry, if you don't have to kick that out as distributions and you reuse that capital, you may get through your business plan quicker. So you may be able to turn things quicker. You might be able to upgrade things quicker. And then you can perhaps refinance and or sell whatever your plan is. 
Uh, that's the way we've done. That's certainly the way we do things now. If Colin and I take down something ourselves, we're, we're not paying ourselves the passive income from the property. We're actually just trying to roll all money back into the project. So it's done as quickly as possible. But we had to change our approach if we were taking on investors because we needed to make sure it's something that they would want to get themselves into. So we saw the end goal in mind is what the investor wants. We now have quarterly distributions and we have reports every quarter and we're expecting a little bit longer timeline. So I think that's a very long way to say, you need to think about where your money's coming from and you're probably gonna have to formulate that investment and the metrics around what that investor wants. And I, I hope that's clear, but that's really, that's why I gave the example of if you're the only investor, what do you want? you would selfishly direct it around whatever the heck you wanted. So if you have 10 other investors and you know what they want, you're going to have to formulate that investment around what they want. Yeah. I mean, some people really enjoy investing in CDs because they 100% know the return that they're going to get. Some people like the stock market. Some people like real estate. Some people like single family homes, et cetera. So to that, everybody has different end goals in mind and risk tolerances. So to your point, it's, it's really, if it's you cater around you, but if it's your investors and you know, your base, the project should be based around what the market's asking for. Yeah. So another part of the question is, it seems to be asking if you're going to invest um, passively into a syndication, what are some things you should look for? So very simply um, it's, the, the deal is incredibly important and we'll get there in a second, but you want to look at the sponsors. You want to see their track record. Um, is this their first deal? Is this their 20th deal? How many have they done? Have they failed at any projects? Um, any bad press about them? Have you spoken to the individuals? Just uh, you can get a really good feel on what you're going to get, but the, the individuals that are running the deal are going to dictate the success of it. So, yeah, I, I think two, two of the biggest questions to ask is, um, and, and I've had some of my partners and, and friends disagree with me on this, but one of the things I love that we can stand behind is that we are putting our own, own money into the deal. Mm -hmm. So a passive investor should ask the general partner, like, how much are you going to invest in the deal? If their answer is, um, I'm actually not investing in this deal. To me, and there's no disrespect to anybody in this space, but that is a red flag. If it's that good of a deal, how could you not be putting your own money in it? Exactly. And then on top of that, you mean to tell me you're not putting any money into it? So if the if the deal goes belly up, then you don't lose anything, but all of us lose our money? That seems so obvious to me. You should put your own money into the deal. Um, and the second item is, uh, oh, if you have an opportunity, speak directly with the, with the actual lead sponsor, the operator of the business. So- you know, I hesitate to say that because obviously Colin and I, we can't take phone calls all day, every day from all of our hundreds of investors. But one of the beneficial is, uh, items are that we have somebody on our team that's a part of the deal. So they're speaking with somebody on our team who's helping us run the investment. They're not just filling out documents they saw online or hearing from their cousin or their sister who's in the deal. It's important to speak to the actual operator so you can ask those questions. Um, I, I think the number one thing that I would always ask, and I love answering this question. And I feel like I've had to answer it a little bit more over the last six to 10 months since I last said this on one of these podcasts is the number one question should be other than, are you putting your own money in? It should be, tell me about a deal of yours that didn't go well or a deal that did not go as expected. Because if that, if that sponsor or if that syndicator says, Oh, that's never happened. I mean, we crush everything we do run 
run far. It, this is an investment. There are risks. Um, I stand behind real estate as being the best investment, but uh, I know there are risks and we've had ups and downs and we've learned a lot from it. So I think it's something you should certainly ask anybody you're about to partner with. Yeah. I mean, so this brings me to the the next one that I've written down. Um, oftentimes in the PPM, um, the private placement memorandum, you'll see kind of the pro forma of how the project's going to perform. What you'll also want to do is start digging in on what the actuals are of the current project. What I found, so I was a, I was a real estate coach for a bit and I remember a student or a recommendation of a student brought a project to me and he was asked to raise money for it. And I started looking through the deal and the rent increases that they had pro forma were 40% increases over what was currently in place. That was year one. And it was the highest in the market. The, the highest in the market by like $200 per month. And I, and I asked him, I was like, this, this all sounds good and great, but like, wh wh where are you getting these numbers from? And we started looking through Zillow, um, through any of the rental sites, which I recommend doing and just looking at the rents that they were projecting, nothing was anywhere close. So I think oftentimes lots of these deals, especially in this last uptick, People were just assuming that, okay, this market's always had a 13 to 17% rent increase for the past two years. We're going to underwrite that in. Oh, plus they're 200 bucks under market and rent. So we're just going to stack that in and automatically in a year, we're going to be there. I, I can tell you that almost never happens. And that is super risky. If you have anything even close to what just happened where interest rates doubled, it's going to destroy your return. So just be really cautious of that. <clears throat> there are times where a project is a heavy value add project, but once again, you're only going to be able to max out at market rents. So just be wary of that, whatever they're performing and know that's going to take a while to get there. Cause that's going to, that's going to hurt the returns. Um, something else to know is uh, distribution. So Chris was mentioning this earlier but are they doing distributions quarterly, every six months? When do those start accruing? And then what is the split? So there's a general partner, limited partner split. So typically on our deals, 70% goes to the limited partner. That's the individual bringing the cash. We also are limited partners as well because we put in our own cash. The other 30% goes back to the general partner. Chris, I'll let you uh, jump in on that and kind of explain that further. But basically, um, any investment, so the limited partner, they get the first 7% preferred return. Anything above that is split 70-30. Sometimes there's different ways of doing that. Sometimes the next 3% to get it to a 70-30 goes back to the general partner. Then it starts a 70-30 split. And usually after the partner return gets a return of all their capital, that could be, in this case, a refinance. So they invest 100000 refinance, they get their 100000 back. The preferred return goes away, and then it's just a 70-30 split. Yeah. So before we jump into the waterfall, because, uh, that can get. That could even be a second topic. I just know some questions that they were trying no, to ask. So. No, for sure. But I want to hit on something you brought up earlier yeah. that I'm glad you brought up was, um, underwriting. So, uh, shout out to value add Mike, uh, uh, who, who's actually consulted with us. Uh, he's, he's great. Um, uh, Mike Tarvella, he's uh guy who does, he, he does what we do. Um, um, I saw him post something on X that was a question. The question was, what do you do when a limited partner comes to you and asks you to walk them through the underwriting or explain the underwriting? And the amount of traction he got on that question 
was extremely surprising because you could not see, there were more polar differences. Uh, Some syndicators would say, look, I'm the active member. If you want to invest with me, invest with me. If you're going to make me sit down for an hour and explain to you how I underwrite, I'm not here to hold your hand. If you know how to underwrite and you know how to do what I'm doing, go do it and don't invest passively. Whereas people in the same position would say, actually, one of the benefits that we offer our investors is that we will walk them through the underwriting. Um, I don't know what the right answer is to that, but I can tell you this much. Uh, I, I think that it's rare that people who are investing passively have the time and knowledge base to underwrite fully, but certainly to what your points were, you should be, you should be cautious of what the projections are. Not necessarily that you know how to fully underwrite multifamily, but if they are counting on 20% increases every single year, because that's what Austin has had the last five years, that's what Austin will have next year or anything like that. You should be a little hesitant and maybe ask your friends or family or different people in the space about what projections can be because some people get very rosy colored glasses when they're looking forward. And I think that's really important. You can basically have a surface level understanding of what the projections are and whether they're being conservative or too liberal. And I think that's really important. Is that fair to summarize? Yeah. I mean, the the biggest thing is that income drives everything. So if that income number is wrong, everything is going to start to fall apart from there. So it's, it's really based on that. So if you can just as a passive individual, get comfortable with that top line number, everything else below that line, there's a lever to pull. Obviously there's taxes, insurance, mortgage, et cetera, but there's more levers to pull. If you max out on a certain level of income, that's going to, that's going to basically be the constraint of how well the project can do. That's so, so true. It's that's it, the number one thing you need to look at. And if you feel comfortable, they can hit that income. Then it could be a property management issue. There could be multiple other issues on the expense side of why you're not hitting your returns. But if you can't hit the income, then you're you're really stuck in kind of a bad place. There's not much you can do. That's a good rule of thumb for sure. Uh, waterfall. So that that second question, Colin's already talked about it. Uh, the promote the waterfall. Basically, how are people dividing this? Because the question we get sometimes is, "What's in it for you? How do you make money, Chris? Colin, how do you how do you make money in this investment?" Um, you know, there's an acquisition fee up front. And that's a lot of people syndicators will take that. It's basically a percentage of the of the overall purchase. You could call it a one time commission, and that's for all of the work put in to actually find that deal. Uh, you're being brought a great investment opportunity, and because of that, there's there's some money being paid for that as a fee. Now, people with teams like us, that goes out to salaries and it goes out to insurance and all types of things, but it's certainly important that we keep the lights on. That's certainly, that's what helps. Um, there are back end fees if you go to sell, somewhat similar to front end fees as far as a percentage of the overall. But that's pretty easy to understand because in, in a transaction business like real estate, people, they get, they get fees. That's just, everyone's kind of used to that. But the acquisition fees, disposition fees, there's one other item called the asset management fee which is a paid fee to the sponsors, the general partners who are overseeing the entire business plan. Oftentimes it's related to how much income is collected. But the reason that's important is that sometimes I've gotten this question from investors and this is not disrespecting anybody, but usually it's a, it's a rookie investor. It's a, it's a, it's somebody who's never done real estate and they're saying, well, why am I paying you an asset management fee? We're already paying a property management fee. Um, and it's completely different. It's very but blatantly, I mean, the asset manager is the babysitter of the property manager. And to be honest, the property manager will make or break the entire deal. If you don't have someone overseeing the property manager and actually implementing what the business plan is, 
then there's it could go off the ra- the rails really quickly. The problem with this is that the property manager is going to do what they're told within reason. They'll follow the law. Um, but if you tell them, put carpet everywhere and don't raise the rents, they'll do that. If you say, uh, I want LVP throughout and then carpets in the bedrooms and I want to redo the vanities and I actually want to bump rents $70, $80, they may give you their, their input about how that compares to the market, but it's the same property manager. They're implementing what your business plan is. We have weekly phone calls with these people. It is the most active part of our business. And that is what the asset manager fee, to be honest, it's actually just a small percentage of the income and it, it does not even pay for, it, it doesn't pay very much at all, but it's really still important because it's not about the money, the asset manager fee. It's really about the overseeing of the property manager. And I know I'm getting long winded here, but then, then I'll get into the final way that the general partners make money. And, and that's through the promote or the waterfall. Really, I think this is, this behooves everybody. This benefits everybody because, uh, it is above and beyond the preferred return. So, so Colin had used the example of 7% preferred return. And that basically just says the first 7% of profit goes to the investor. So if, if we buy the property and then throughout the 10 years of ownership, it only makes a 7% return and then we sell it and it still stays no more than 7%. All of that money goes to the investor. The general partners in that deal made no money for all those 10 years because they did not get to the promote or the waterfall, which is everything above the preferred return. This is a very general way of speaking, but this is certainly how nine out of 10 syndications or 99 out of 100 are set up. So the way that we can make money is if it performs better than the preferred return. And that should incentivize you. This isn't a shot at financial advisors because they're important. We have a financial advisor, which I trust very much. But they make, the way they make money, they make a percentage of however much money you have with them. So if you have a million dollars, they get a percentage of that. If that a million dollars goes down to $900,000 in value because of either their fault or the market's fault or whatever, they get a percentage of that. There's no, that is exactly what they're, that's the money they're making is the percentage of however much you have invested. The percentage the asset managers make typically unless it's a fund, it's, it's a percentage of the income received. I'm, I'm sorry, the waterfall or the money over the preferred return is where the individuals like us can make the most money. So if we can get it to perform over the preferred return, that's where you and I start dividing 70-30. And that is why we're so incentivized to make this work better. There's no point in us making it only perform at 7% because obviously, uh, it, it, that's that's a good return, especially with tax write-offs and whatnot, but we start really capitalizing if we can get over that 7%. And so, you know, the question was, how do you structure this? There's a number of ways to, to structure it, but ultimately, especially in this market with the weird banking situations and the decent money markets you can make and the CDs, you want to make sure that preferred returns high enough to be um, attractive to an investor. And then you want to make sure you reward yourself if you can make that asset perform because that means now that anything over that preferred return, you as a syndicator start making money. That was long-winded. I hope it's- It's perfect. All right, well. Okay. This is our first AMA too, so. No, that's good, yeah, man. Go, go easy on us. What, what do we got? Biggest challenge next? Biggest challenge of the day, week, month, year? Biggest challenge of before noon or afternoon? Yeah. Uh, how, do we, how do we parse this out? Biggest challenge of, uh, well, here, biggest challenge for me, hands down, and I, and I remember this every once in a while, uh, like recently, this is kind of a funny story. When I got done practicing law for 10 years, I was like, I'm finally done dealing with people's emotions. 
I am so tired of being a divorce attorney for 10 years and everyone's upset with you. Even the clients who I crushed for in court, <laughs> if that other spouse, like they actually ended up, they got the bed or they got the curio or for some reason, my client still had to pay child support, even though they made $700,000 a year and the other person made 40. They were always upset about something. <laughs> and and not all of them. I loved a lot of my clients, but it, divorce is a negative environment. Nobody seems to be happy. Judges aren't happy doing it and it, nobody seems to be happy. I thought I was getting away from that. And the biggest challenge for me is I learned, and this is not a bad thing, is that getting away from the whole family emotional thing is great, but now you're dealing with money and emotions. And so it's a really big task that we take on dealing with people's money. I'm not saying we're certified financial planners, but we are literally handling people's hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars that they've saved for their family, that they've earned themselves and they're trusting us. And so the biggest challenge for me is to, to, to be somewhat empathetic in those situations. So when they have a question about a couple pennies that are off or they, they wanna know why our projections from four years ago don't match exactly to the dollar this year, pausing, understanding them dealing with people's money and, and candidly speaking about those things was, has become the bigger challenge, but something I'm certainly learning. Yeah. Um, I don't know if this is my biggest challenge now since we've created a merger in the property management group, but it was certainly a big one for me at the beginning. Um, it was not just managing people, um, but managing exceptions. So when you start off, you've got a duplex and a house or three houses and you start collecting rent in three different ways and it's not a big deal and you're tracking things differently and it's okay if the resident calls you and then you start getting larger and then you scale the 50, 100 units people are calling you and that no longer works. So you have to change that system. But then you still, there's still Susie out there who has your number and she still continues to call you. And that's creating an exception, which then is then stacking all these additional duties up that start to make the day almost impossible. And you start going backwards. It becomes something at one point where I was answering every phone call, answering every email, doing all the leasing, et cetera, but also allowing exceptions to things. So somebody could move in one day. And I said that that was okay. Somebody could pay a prorated rent this way. Somebody had a pet fee. Somebody didn't have this. Somebody was through this management system. And until you consolidate those things to say, this is how it's done. It's going to be incredibly difficult that and managing people, managing people is very difficult. Um, you know, somebody's cat may die and they may need a few days off of work and business still has to go on, but you have to be empathetic to those individuals, but the day still has to go on. So that that's always going to be a challenge. I think what you do to combat that is truly have some, some empathy for the individual. You want to get to know the individual and this goes with contractors. This goes with your appraiser. This goes with your financial advisor. You want to get to know them. You want to get to know their personality. You want to offer value to them. That means you're a good client or you're a good customer of theirs, but then always keep them challenged. Meaning that, you know, if you have a contractor that you're given a lot of work to, but you, you want to push them sometimes, ask them for favors because it, it's almost, I don't know what it is, but it's almost like a, like a debt. When you ask somebody for a favor, it's, it's, I can't remember what this reward system's called. But when you start asking that, they feel a closer bond to you. So, hey, can you do me this favor? Say you're building this up. I really need help with this. And then you thank them for that. You start building up these stronger relationships. But 
certainly managing people and then the the scaling of systems is the huge challenge. That's so hard. <laughs> yeah, it's still hard. It becomes it's once you think you have something handled, you scale a little bit larger and you find new problems and you have to figure those out. I think uh, you hit some bank accounts. How many bank accounts do we have in managing bank accounts? That's it. That's it's now a, a challenge. It's not a full-time job. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things you hit on that kind of bleeds into another question, but as far as a big challenge, uh, you said some of the, the exceptions, I would say when you're building exceptions can, can ruin you is what you're basically saying. Yeah. You almost need to get to a point where you're not allowing exceptions. And Absolutely. I think, I think that builds into like a daily habit and routine thing. Um, look, you can go off about, I've seen a lot of these funny bro, uh, reels about, I wake up at two thirty AM and then I, I run a marathon and, uh, because there's a couple of people recently who've, um, who've been putting out some outlandish things about what they do with their day. But I, I think that to tie it into sincerely being disciplined, um, and not allowing exceptions, for example, uh, it's the holidays. Like if you're trying to eat well, um, Maybe you can say, look, I'm going to, I'm going to go hard in the paint on Christmas. I'm going to have some pie and ice cream, maybe the day before or after, or maybe I'm making cookies with the kids on Christmas Eve or whatever. And that's what I'm going to let loose. But maybe you say you're planning this. Maybe you say, look, but the next seven days after Christmas, when all that stuff's laying around, I don't have to, I don't have to go hard in the paint with that stuff. Like there are no exceptions. That's where you should lay. You should say, I'm doing A, B, and C and anything after that, I'm not changing. I, I, th th because to Colin's point earlier, if you start answering Susie's phone call and, and now you're like us with, you know, 2,700 units, you can't answer all those phone calls. No. And the service is going to go down everywhere and you're going to, everybody's, everybody's experience is going to be affected by other people's exceptions. Right. So you need to be disciplined. You need to not make exceptions. Um, and that leads into the, the daily routines. This is one of your favorite questions. Uh, this is what I'm starting to get better about that. I've been actually pretty decent about recently, probably because of Colin as much as I hate him. In You're welcome. Uh, but I do. You're looking my, good by the way. Oh, I'm, thanks. I'm going to say that actually to the whole world. I'm going to give you a compliment. Wow. I know that's, that is an exception, ladies and gentlemen. Please make sure we're recording this this time. I wanna, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so I think Colin, you did in the morning, but one of the things that has like, I hate saying this because it sounds like not cliche, but like, you know, it's the flavor of the week or of the year, but oh, it is cold plunge and now sauna slash heat, but certainly the cold plunge, but, um, it has changed. It has changed my life. Like, I don't know how to tell. I, okay. I think the last time I spoke about things like this, it was, it was CrossFit. Yeah. <laughs> so, so just as cultish. Um, but to me, which is, uh, that is a non-negotiable that is, uh, I do not take exceptions. I'm going to cold plunge every day. I, I have to, I can tell my body if I haven't, um, I can tell in my demeanor. I can, if I get home tonight after this, I will get home and I will cold plunge pretty early on. I need to be present with the kids. I need to be present with my wife. And if I don't cold plunge, my mind's racing. Did you see that email for 3, 12 PM? And all of a sudden I just can't think about anything else. And cold plunging has been huge for me. And that is something I have built into my daily routine. Yeah, it's huge. So we were just talking about this earlier. And so it's great to have habits, but how do you actually like get the courage and the discipline to do it? Um, James Clear has a book, Atomic Habits. It's awesome. Must read. It's a must read. There's a couple um, techniques he has in there that I found very, very helpful. Um, so with the cold plunge, I cold plunge every day too. I actually do it in the morning, sauna, then do that. I combine that with my breathing. 
Um, but I hate the cold plunge and I, I, I love it, but I never want to get into it. It's miserable. It's freezing. Like, it's just not fun. Like it's, <laughs> it's great when it's a hundred degrees out and maybe I've had a couple beers and I'm like, oh, this is going to feel good for the rest of the day, get my energy back. But otherwise when it's 6am and it's 30 degrees out, it's not the first thing you want to do. But what I do is first thing in the morning is I go downstairs and I lift up the lid for the cold plunge. So I, I see the water. And what that is, is that signaling to me that the next time that lid closes, it should be because I'm coming out of that cold plunge. I, I it, it becomes a disappointment. Like I can't go up to it and exert all that energy. I only need to be in there for three minutes. The fact of me coming from my kitchen, walking downstairs, closing the lid, opening the lid, that's a minute itself. Telling myself I don't have the time to jump in is a complete loss. So that is one leading thing I do. Another thing, um, when I was struggling to get back to the gym really early, when I was trying to go at five or 6 AM and it, it was just a struggle. And I noticed sometimes in the morning I would struggle like, Oh, I've got to go to the laundry room, look for some socks or here. I don't have a clean shirt or where's my shoes just not organized. And all of a sudden I'd burn 20 minutes doing that. And by that time it was too late to go to the gym. So in atomic habits, what he mentions doing is put all those clothes out even if they're only five feet away in your dresser, literally take all of them out and put them right by your bedside. That I have a glass of water right there, ready to go. There's no excuses. I can get up without thinking brain still off and put it on. So I, I think you got to do some signaling items, meal prep. If you want to eat well, I have somebody do meal prepping for me. Y you say it's expensive. I've, I've heard haters on all sides. It's like 13 to 15 bucks a meal, but sometimes it's two meals. And guess what? I just spent 38 bucks for lunch for a bowl and a smoothie down the street. <laughs> so a $15 meal is a lot cheaper. It's ready for you. And now you have no excuse not to eat healthy because otherwise you can make the excuse. There's nothing healthy. I got to stop by fast food, et cetera. So I really think it's finding ways to signal and be prepared. You got to do things before you need it for the action to occur, because otherwise you're relying on wanting to be in the mood as well as just uh, the, the environment to be correct. But if you can set the environment up ahead of time, it really doesn't matter your mood if all the tools are there. You're just gonna have to push through it. So, yeah. I mean, Tony Robbins says when he wakes up, this is also helpful. Like if you're starting cold plunging or working out, um, he's always like, well, my mind's telling me no, but he says, just shut up mind. And I force my body to get in. Just don't like listen to it. Just say, you're not in charge. Your, your mind is not in charge. Your body can move. However, move your body and get into it. Yeah. Like you can overcome yeah. those things. So really having that. So I, I think that's just some beneficial items and anything you can do to stack habits. Um, so finally I have lemon water with salt in the morning. What that does is it gives you energy. It hydrates you. It immediately like creates energy. Well, I drink that as soon as my alarm clock goes off or my eye, or I start getting up in the morning. It may not be time to get up, but I'll drink it because I know that I'll start absorbing into my system. 45 minutes later, I'll naturally have the energy to get up. So just do all these different signaling things to get yourself going. Yeah, I want to bring this back or full circle. Like not everybody has the opportunity to wake up and get in a cold plunge and get in a sauna and have a $78 million meal delivered to them. And like- I think we're, we're pretty lucky to be able to speak about things like this, but it really is about repetition in that book, James Clear, that he said like, there, the study was people would literally drive to the gym and then turn around. And 
that built up to then five minutes at the gym, then 15 minutes at the gym. And, and the rule, the main thing was, is they were building a habit. And so sometimes it's getting through some of the harder parts. I, I When I read that, it was weird to me because if I was at the gym, I'm like, look, I've already, I'm already here. I'm going to go I'm in. I'm not going to spend one minute, do one set and leave. But for a lot of people, like they've, they had never set clothes out before. They had never gotten up an hour early. They had never done any of those things. So setting those small goals, like for example, for me, one of my weird goals, which wasn't necessarily a chronological of my day, a chronological goal of my day, but I made it a, a commitment to myself 10, 15 years ago is that when I was driving in the car, I would listen to books or YouTube to, to teach myself something. Um, it's small. It's free. It's something small. Well, YouTube's free. It's something small you can do to better yourself, to learn about real estate, to learn about entrepreneurial endeavors, to learn about health, to do whatever, to change the way you're approaching things and doing them a small bit of a time to build that habit. I think that's really, really important. And that's a question we get a lot about what are your, your daily routines, your daily habits. And because maybe it's cliche to ask that now, but when people see others becoming really successful, like I wonder what that individual is doing. It's really easy to say, I bought a million dollar property. I sold it for $2 million and therefore I made a bunch of money. But how did you get there? How did, you know, the Alex Ramosi thing, here's how you make money. You buy it for 7 million, you sell it for 10. Okay. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Alex. Loser. <laughs> you don't know anything about business. <laughs> um, but no, no. that's understandable. How do you put yourself in that mind frame? How do you get there? How do you re re constantly put yourself in the best position to get that done? Because those opportunities don't come around all the time. Yeah. So I remember when I first started um, and just started reading all the books and everything and getting up early, going to the gym. And you know, this is like two, three months in no property, like just not feeling like I'm making traction, but I'm making traction. I just remember one day I'm driving to the gym. It's like 6am or 545. I'm like, why the hell am I doing this? Like, this sucks. Like I'm going to work. I got a good job. Like, what am I thinking? Like, just stop. But I always put on a podcast or a book or something in the morning Cause I just, even if I didn't want to, cause there's some days you don't want to listen to that crap. You're just like, mm -hmm. I'm done. thank you. No, thank you. Mm -hmm. Good for you. Congratulations on your hundred rentals and that you're living on a beach. Like, I don't want to hear about that crap. Like I'm going to work and it's cold out, but I put it on. And then I heard a story that just like gave me a little bit of motivation. That motivation powered me through the gym, made me feel better for the rest of the day. And what I learned from that is that you don't know, just like you don't know before you pick up a book, what you're going to extract from it. You don't know, but if you can continue to put things that you know are good habits in front of you, just like going to the gym, are you going to have 18 inch biceps tomorrow? No. Okay. But keep working out and you will start to get stronger and bigger. You just have to put one foot forward. Another thing is the, the, the dedication of consistency. So I think waking up in first thing in the morning, your, your brain, it's gosh, what, what type of Wavelength or wavelength or whatever. The first like 10, 15 minutes is uh, still in REM, not REM. I know what you're talking about. I just heard it too. I know, um, but it's still going through that. So it's in a very placid state. And oftentimes if you get on and look at very static things, meaning you look at your phone, you look at email, you start looking at Facebook, your, your mind is now like molding just towards that type of information and is getting into that thought versus if you start writing, if you start reading immediately. So now I try immediately in the morning to write and it's a gratitude journal from one of our former podcast guests, Todd Zimbelman. He'll be speaking at this month's meetup. 
So that'll be exciting. Yep. This episode is brought to you by Raven. This is a company that we're affiliated with. So our business, Eleven Wealth, is a part of this business. And we are so excited for this opportunity. Uh, what this is, is a real estate company that invests into value-add opportunities and in the process actually installs solar implementation into the buildings. And so we decarbonize the atmosphere. We also install low flow uh, water conservation mechanisms, and we have a social aspect to it as well. Raven allows investors to get into real estate for as low as $250. We have plenty of investors who've invested a lot more than that, but the minimums on this are only $250. There's a 10% return on that money and it's backed by real estate. So I just really stress people to go to joinraven.com. That's uh, joinraven, R-A-Y-V-E-N.com. Take a look at the website. It's fantastic what we're doing, not only as investors, but obviously for the planet. Uh, joinraven.com, it's phenomenal. Um but just to reframe your mind, another thing I did the first year is in between, I, I did not take a, I did not listen to any music. I did not take a single lunch break except for once the entire year. That means if somebody asked me for lunch, I said, no. And I, I said, the reason was because it wasn't getting me towards my goal. Mm -hmm. So I'd either combine exercise or work or both, except for Christmas Eve when I took my team out to uh, lunch. But other than that, you have to say no to everything. You have to say, I want to talk to you, just not now. I've got work to do. And that's the thing. You get People get so sidetracked. They start on something for a day. They did it for three days. And then it's a week later. And then it's two weeks later. And then Jordan Peterson says, and all of a sudden you wake up four, at 40 and you don't know what you did with your life. And now you want to start over. And that's a really shitty place to be. Mm -hmm. So you got to make those repetitive uh, decisions daily. And they'll stack on each other, but you can't be loose with it. I know. I can tell when I start to get a little lax and just jumping in for a week just puts you on the right. Like I'm about to do this. Car I'm about to do a carnivore thing. I'm 100% going to do it. Oh, here we go. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's uh, find every hot fad and let's try them all out on Chris. Yeah. So I'm not doing the carnivore diet. Are you going to do TikTok dancing at the same time too? I am. I'm going to floss. I'm going to bring it back. Oh, please tell me about your drop shipping company. <laughs> <laughs> um. No, I'm not doing the carnivore diet because I think that's the way that I should eat the rest of my life. I'm not doing it so I can lose weight for the beach in a month. I'm doing it because I I know it's something that I can implement for 30 days, um, which means that's that's the most important thing is that you don't fall off the wagon the first few, few weeks. And I need something to get as clean as possible after what I've done to myself between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Mm. I, I have just I have, I've gone, I've gone to town, which is fine. I've had a good time, but uh, just a lot of just eating terribly and not getting very good sleep. And, and with the carnivore diet, basically I'm, I'm, I'm modifying it. It's basically paleo. I'm basically just not having carbs or processed stuff like that. But like, um, I don't even reason, I don't know why I brought this up. No, it's good, man. Whatever Joe Rogan does, let's, let's do that. No, I don't even, <laughs> I don't even know if he speaks on it. No, Paul he Sal does. He says he does. Paul he Saladino is a doctor on podcast. He's the one who says kale is bullshit. Have you ever seen that guy? No. Oh, he's really popular. Yeah. Here's the deal. I'm a, I am interested in doing the carnivore diet. Like what I've heard it does, what it does for you. What I have heard though, is that it reduces your strength pretty, pretty like you're going to notice yeah, a difference. Yeah. Like your strength's going to go down. Yeah, the, uh, less glycogen and all that other yeah, stuff. But your energy level should be really good. You should be very clear on thinking. Look, I'm not going to the Olympics for, for lifting. I'm not going to compete in CrossFit. I don't know, man. Look yeah. at you. I mean, if my, if my bench is Look at you, 15 dude. pounds less. You can almost dunk a basketball. If my, if my bench is 15 pounds less, I, I'm fine. I'm, I'm, after, I'm trying to get rid of inflammation. I don't even know why I brought that up, um, but good talk.
Yeah, no, it's uh, some other discipline to to create discipline. Um, it, you know, I, I think just doing anything repetitively, it's the book, uh, you know, Make Your Bed or the, by the lieutenant or the admiral that says, you know, first thing you should do in the morning is make, make your, your bed. bed. If you make your bed, it'll lead to this, 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 this. I didn't understand it for the longest time and now I get it. My day when it starts off and I'm not doing the things I shouldn't, when I don't have my glass of water, when I don't go and have my vitamins and this and do this and this and this and this because I haven't woken up early enough because I wasn't disciplined enough. It affects everything. The whole day just kind of goes to crap. Like I don't eat the right things. I don't, I, everything goes out the window. I yeah. miss some phone calls. I'm not as effective. And it's the way you do one thing is the way you do how everything. you do anything is how you do everything. A hundred percent. It's the truest statement. I love that saying. Uh, okay. Working with uh, financial advisors, and CPAs. So we get this question a lot. Um, gosh, I was on a call yesterday for one of our deals and I had to answer like four or five CPA questions in a row. So of course I, I somewhat made it a joke and I said, look, I'm not your CPA. I suggest you check with your CPA. Um, but it's really important to have those professionals around you. First off, you can always give them work. You can you can talk to investors and you can say, look, here's my CPA. Maybe they're taking on clients. I think one of the more important things is that you know how to speak the lingo because you're obviously recognized and appreciated more. Uh, it's, I think it's important you understand what your CPA does or at least the surface of it. Uh, but I do think it's important that you can explain that to the investor, at least give them some direction before they talk to their CPA. And, and really just the importance of building those partnerships. I mean, you know, sometimes someone will ask me like, who's doing this for you? And I'll say, I, I got, I got some team, I got, I got a team on it or whatever like that. And it's not necessarily my team, it's, but it's, it's, it's who we consider our team members. We consider our CPA part of our team. He's not in-house. We consider our attorney part of our team. And, and we're talking to them every other day. And I think it's really important that, you know, sometimes people are like, how do I do this? Where do I have money? I can't find deals. I can't do this. One of the most overlooked people that you can form or, or bring into your team are these people who can help you navigate through the legal and the financial decision-making process. And I think it's really important to bring on qualified attorneys and CPAs. Yeah. So just to add a little bit to the CPA comment, we just had a, a CPA speak at our last meetup and the, the question that was asked was very, very similar to the situation what I was in. And it was an individual who has like 10 or 20 houses and he's got a buddy or family member that does his taxes and he thinks it's good. He doesn't know if it's good. He thinks he wants to look at another firm and he asks the question, do I just like bring you a stack of papers and you look at it? Do you charge for that? How do you go about it? And before the CPA got into it and he started commenting, I just said what I had done in the past. And cause this is a true situation. You know, we had a, a family member, wife's family member, great guy, but he does a lot of just family taxes. Like it's very, it's not business focused or it's a much smaller business, less real estate focused taxes. He's great at him. He's on time. His prices are great. And, you know, he was doing my taxes and, you know, at the end of the year, I'd owe like, you know, a thousand bucks from like a duplex or maybe 2000 or a sevenplex. I'd owe like, you know, 4,500 or something like that. Well, then Chris starts talking about Frankel Zachariah. We start doing taxes there, a similar tax return. And I'm getting like a negative $50,000 write off. <laughs> and I'm just like, holy cow, what is going on here? And this is when, you know, I had some other active income, et cetera. So I, I, I wasn't in the negatives yet. Like I had no carryover. So I'm like, 
okay, this is real freaking money. This isn't the difference between $600 tax return and $1,400. This is the difference of, you know, netting $10,000 per property. Um, so my answer to that individual was do what I did. If you have a property, just one of them, and you want to see, go take it to a new CPA, see how it turns out. If you don't want to do the full switch right away, because it, 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 there was the conversation turned into six other people raised their hands that were in that exact same situation that had a family member doing their taxes who they knew were competent at taxes, but weren't fully sure that they were competent and doing taxes to the fullest for a real estate professional. So if you want to do it and you want to break the seal, just bring one tax return there. But lots of, uh, lots of CPAs will review it for you, but a hundred percent you should, you don't need to give them the full story, show them something where you think you could get the most value from, see what they come back with. And that, that should be your answer. You should let the, the, the savings and what the actual return is guide you. You also want to be careful. I mean, I've never had one of these CPAs, but one that gets too aggressive. Um, cause that just can lead to a nightmare. Oh, I heard another story there about a CPA that, you know, they considered great. Once again, another family friend, family member, this was the CPA telling the story, um, from a new client of theirs. CPA was doing great. They were getting, you know, they were getting a bunch of money back on their taxes. Everything was looking good. Well, it turns out they didn't file state income taxes for three years. They got hit with a $250,000 penalty penalty, not including the actual taxes. So they thought they were crushing it in their business, probably living well beyond their means or hiring too much, et cetera, thinking everything is sunny. And they were being told what they wanted to hear, but not actually what they needed to that's hear. So. Sc- that's scary. That's frightening. Yeah. That's frightening. So, I, so the, the CPA, whatever you give your current CPA for that one property, just give a second CPA that and, and just see what the outcome. Yeah. When I was introduced to Andy Worthington, it was through, through somebody else in town here. It was a 20 unit apartment complex. It was my first time ever getting anything larger than a nine unit. And I got a write off of $4,000 and I was like, Oh, cool. Write off. That's awesome. And my partners on that deal, they had like a, a 16 unit and they got like 60,000 in write offs. And I'm like, how is that possible? Now, of course that could be possible. There's different, details for every investment were like $4,000. Something's off. I took it to Andy. Uh, all he wanted is the income statement, the rent roll. Shoot. I think all he wanted is the income statement. Um, $98,000 <laughs> from 4,000 to 98,000. I filed, um, I filed an amendment on my taxes for that. Luckily I was early enough in my career where I only had a couple entities. Yeah. And from that day forward, we use uh, Andy for everything. And I think it's important not to be too. And that's real money though. Huge money. I mean, look, um, if you were in the 30% tax bracket, that's 30 grand. It's a boatload. It's a boat in your pocket. It's a boatload. And I think maybe he's like, well, we get, we get pretty market prices from him because we have so many to offer, but I've heard if you're just kind of a onesies and twosies with him, he's, you know, Frankel Zachariah is a large firm, maybe yeah. paying a tad more, five, 10% more, but if they're saving you 700% then yeah, up. it doesn't matter. Uh, another example is uh, I, I started to tell a story earlier that that phone call was on just yesterday. An investor called, it's an investor uh, who's invested with us before, great guy. Um, and he has his financial advisor on. I think it's his advisor, but certainly someone who's proclaiming to be their advisor. And uh, we're going through write-offs and I had already done the whole check with your CPA, but here's what I know that I've witnessed. And the question from the financial advisor was, 
Chris, I don't think you're right. If you just close on that property in December, then you're only going to get one month of write-offs because you didn't own it for the first 11 months of the year. And I'm like, first off, if you ask a random person this on the, on the street, I don't blame them for, for coming to that resolution be, or, or, or that conclusion because they don't know. And that's fine that you don't know. This was that person's financial advisor, the person that helps them make their decisions on where to place their money did not know about the write-offs that they would, they would get from No, worse. They gave incorrect information, the wrong information confidently. That's way worse. And so, um, and look, my finance advisor, Andrew Hunt, he's been on the show. He obviously he's a CPA as well, which obviously helps, but he, he would have never said that, but like get second opinions is the point of that story. Yeah. Get somebody who knows what they're talking about and always try to, to double check and make sure. That, you're that's good thing. advice for everything in this business. Anything. Always get a second opinion. I don't care. Did you get a second opinion on your, on your, on your chest, your, your pec? I got tons of opinions. <laughs> oh yeah. I did not want to have surgery on that thing. Yeah. I asked everybody. Yeah. I literally asked everybody and sent x-rays to four or five different there people. There you go. Yes. I was not wanting surgery on there, but they were all jerks and told me what I didn't want to hear. Um, I, I want to get to, I, I'd like you to explain the reps just cause mm. that's, I know that's jumping down, but sure. lots of people don't know about it. I was able to do it with a W2. Now I have heard that's incredibly difficult, but man, I could show those 750 hours. There was zero doubt. I was also on my way of phasing out as well. Well, I don't know if the question surrounds itself with reps on how to be a real estate professional. Oh, but uh, we can talk about that too. Uh, that's a huge. Uh, so is caveat. that like reps in the gym? Is that what that means? Yeah. You wrote it down. They're a little worried about your lack of reps. In the gym. Oh, okay. No, I'm joking. Um, real estate professional status. Uh, first off, we can talk about both of those. So real estate professional status, uh, again, check with your CPA. Um, here's a prime example of people being conservative and not conservative. So uh, our CPA said, no, if you have a full-time job, you cannot qualify as a real estate professional. Now, I don't know if it was so much black and white, but more, look, if you have a full-time job and then on top of that, you want to qualify as a real estate professional, which by the way, there are, the IRS lists out what it would take to qualify as a real estate professional. And then of course it can help you on your write-offs and we can do a whole show on that. Um, RCPA said, no, you can't. Uh, now I, I think black and white, there's a possibility that you can, you can say, sure, I have a full-time job, but I actually did even more work than my full-time job I did in real estate. And therefore I'm a real estate professional. And so I do know that our says no, whereas other CPAs that I know, I know doctors, CPAs who say you can be a doctor full-time and then also have a real estate business. And as long as you're performing more hours in that real estate business than you are as a doctor, that you actually qualifies real estate professional. I hope that's the case for anybody wanting to do it, but there's a prime example of the need to ask for two opinions. Mm -hmm. The good thing about the CPA second opinion is that that individual has to sign your tax returns yep. with you. They have to actually, all they can say is, uh, I'm, I'm admitting or I, I attest to the information in this is what the information was provided to me by the client. So they can't say they know you put in more than 750 hours. They would have no idea. They didn't follow you around. But they can say this individual gave me a list of their hours and therefore I'm saying, and what else they've done. And I'm saying they are a real estate professional. So they would have to bless off on, they also gave me their W-2 as a doctor. So they would have to, they, that person's admitting that they know you're a full-time doctor, but you're some, somehow still a real estate professional. The good thing is you're taking that leap with them, which is really important for a CPA. Reps, the question came, um, 
really about uh, perception uh, versus reality. And, uh, you know, people jump on and listen to our podcast. Gosh, talk about perception. Side note, there are parents at my, at my kid's school. Uh, some of them I consider friends for sure. And I, I'm pretty sure they think that the only job we have is podcasters. <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty sure because they're like, every time I see them, it's like, hey, how's the podcast going? Are you guys, you know, like, it's the only, now it could just be an easy thing to talk about, but yeah, like, yeah. but sometimes it's, you know, usually you're like, what do you do for a living or whatever? And sometimes it's just like, you know, that, you know, that I'm not a full-time. Or, yeah. Or, or I get the question, man, your life must be great. Oh, it's so easy. You're just off living. There. I'm like, what <laughs> are you talking about? Like <laughs> so perception versus reality. So social media, <laughs> very yeah. different. Yeah. Very different. Um, but I think the question for perception versus reality, which will, which will lead to reps is that, you know, Everyone talks about how mailbox money and how much money and not do anything or how easy real estate is and all these write-offs and it's the only way to invest and uh, the stock market's the devil. Like there are so many things that you and I have learned through this process still that we're still learning. And uh, luckily what I, I, I can only speak to what we've gone through, but I think it was, it, it is certainly what I would suggest to anybody who's getting started is if you're going to get into real estate or any endeavor, where there's a possibility you're taking on other people's money, I think you should build those reps by yourself or mm -hmm. with, with an intimate small amount of people so that you can ride the negative wave uh, together or by yourself and learn so that when you start taking on passive investors or taking on partners or taking on capital that you, everyone still makes mistakes, but you've kind of gotten through some of those early um, mistakes or, or, or learning opportunities because- yeah, 100%. I mean, we all have the think and the thought of, you know, we're, we're going to do our best by our investors, which we do, but you're going to notice things a lot quicker when it's a hundred percent of your money, which is going to make you more attentive to it. The more you are attentive to it in the beginning, that's going to give you the additional skills. So you don't make those mistakes going forward. So I think it is incredibly important to do some things either on your own or with your partner, but honestly doing something a hundred percent on your own, is really freaking good. That's awesome. It, it's great. The amount that you learn, I, I don't think it's a good strategy forever, but I think it's a really good thing to do once or twice. Like just the couple duplexes I bought on my own and from finding and sourcing the deal to the purchase agreements, to the entities, to every single little piece, I did every part of that project. Right. Right. Coordination with title company, you know, exchanging leases, doing the move-in for the, the new residents, doing all the leasing, you know, it, it just... All of those little things translate to knowledge for the future to know what you need to expect from the later professions, such as using third-party property managers, title companies, or your partners. So yep. yeah, it's, it's incredibly important. I think everybody should do it because it'll just force you to learn more quicker. It's what I actually, it stinks for me when I was in the military is that for real estate, I've done every, uh, that I know of in the business that you and I are scaling, I have worn that hat. So mm -hmm. have you, like we, we've worn the hat of doing A, B, and C. And now we no longer wear some of those hats because we have even better people in those positions, which is how you want to build a business. And that's awesome. But I love how I know that I've done it so that I can at least know where they're at, what they're doing and or learn, but speak the language of that individual. One of the things I have, a, which was unfortunate, was the military. Because you show up, they, they call you butter bars, but you show up because you- Butterbean? Was that your nickname? Butterbean, yeah, I was a little overweight. No, I wasn't. Uh -huh. Butter bars, uh, that's your, so you, the, the, the insignia um, for a second lieutenant in the army is a gold bar. Mm -hmm. And they call you a butter bar, maybe because you're soft or I don't know what it is, but you show up and all of a sudden, like if you're a platoon leader, 
you have 30 people underneath you. And the problem with it is that I had to show up and like somehow know that what they were doing was right. And I had never done it. Mm. Now a good, that, that was very frustrating to me because like you're, you're in a leadership position, but you have no idea what they're doing. Now a good, uh, do you ask questions? And when you ask them, do you make them? Not to the, you? Yes, sir. Not to the soldiers. Okay. No, and it wasn't like that. So it's not the movie. So the good thing is I don't oh. have to be the asshole. You're supposed to be like a little more polished and you're supposed to be making the decisions uh, behind the, behind the curtain, if you will. And if you're smart, if you're good, what am I supposed to do? Private. You no. you rely, on the, you rely on the platoon sergeant. Uh, okay. Fair enough. The platoon sergeant has 15 years of experience, 10 to 20 years. Of experience. Okay. Gotcha. So you actually get some decent knowledge from him. So, yeah. And they're, they're calling you sir and stuff. And you know, but I mean, a, a, a good Lieutenant will show up and be like, look, Sorry, like, how do we handle this? Like, what yeah. are we doing? And one of the things that stinks about it is that is I, I'll, I could have never gotten that those reps. Mm. So back to the reps conversation. Uh, you show up, you're at this position where you're never going to get these reps. So it, become, it, it can become difficult to be as good of a leader when you have no idea what the people underneath you are doing. Yep. Whereas here, if you can start with a duplex, if you can start with a fourplex, if you can start with just you and your father like I did, like you can make those decisions or mistakes or whatever, build those reps so that when you start taking other people on, you're ready to roll. Yeah, but reps is also important for just uh, the, the being told no. So I can't mm. find any properties. How many times have you asked? How many letters have you sent out? Have you called every single for rent sign listed online or that you've seen driving around town? No. Okay. Then you haven't done your job yet. Yep. If you really want an off market property, those are the things you need to do. You got to do the reps and the thing yet. 99 no's and a yes means yes. That's, that's the point yeah. of it. A like a great analogy is golf. Like I hate golf because I, I, my OCD doesn't allow me to disconnect from the world for five hours, but also I hate golf cause I'm not good. And all that matters is it's the 10th hole. And then all of a sudden I have one good shot and the entire day is worth it. Mm -hmm. That's my analogy to real estate and, or like some of these entrepreneurial endeavors, like you're going to be told no a hundred times, but that 101st time when you actually take down a deal and it works, it made the first hundred worth every penny and you're getting better those first hundred. Right. But now all of a sudden it works. You're like, Holy shit, this was worth it. And I, you, you're smart enough now to realize you don't hit a home run every single swing. So those reps are huge. It just, just learn to fail and start small, I guess. Oh, that's a good way to, that's a good way to say it is the risk that you're taking. Be sure you can lose it. Yeah. Yeah. So I like uh, investment opportunities that have a, that get you down to zero at worst besides your time. So if you can get into an investment and, you know, say you're getting into a rental, this is why I like rentals. Sorry, going on a little tangent, but versus flipping, there's a lot of downside in flipping one, the market can change Two, you're dealing with a vacant property. So you're not producing any income three, there could be scope creep, meaning the scope changes. You're paying these large financing costs, maybe to a lender, maybe it's just to a bank. So you've got it sitting there vacant for longer. Um, contractors could steal from you, blah, blah, blah. I guess any of these things could happen in multifamily, but the difference is in like a multifamily property, you can keep some of the units occupied, still producing income in that. And if the market shifts and all of a sudden your project's worth less, well, you can't refinance and your money's stuck in there. Or maybe the value does drop of it, but now your money's just stuck in there. So you're not, you're not going backwards. You can still hold on to it. it. It maybe doesn't get you to what you thought of recouping that capital, but you don't lose it. A flip, you can lose capital. You know, other investments, you can lose capital. So that's why, I mean, multifamily makes so much sense in that arena. No doubt. No doubt. I hope that answered the question on reps. We'll see if it does or not. We handle the daily routines, best case, worst case. You just kind of answered that right there. One of the questions we did get on the, when people were answering the Facebook request was um, with, 
increased interest rates, like how are we running this business? What, what do we, how do you view real estate? Look, if you get on social media right now, you'll read 100 million different opinions on what's going to happen with real estate and interest rates over the next year. They fall somewhere on the spectrum. And a lot of times they're, they're, they're closer to the middle. Um, for us, it, it did not change the way we approach things. So look, I, we had a great 2023 and I think we had a chance to kind of work, you know, in-house on our systems a little more than we did in 2022 because we were acquiring so much, but we still acquired a lot in 2023. And I think uh, the, so to answer the question about what we're going to do with increased interest rates, I think it's just be being will being willing to be flexible. Our seller financing was crushed. I mean, I think our fifth portfolio had three deals and all of them had seller financing. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think that, uh, right now we're looking at a deal with seller financing and a lot of times people, they forget about those opportunities. Another option for us that we capitalized on was assuming great debt. Um, the, the debt's out there, it's assumable. So, so that's a great way to take down assets still. So the question was kind of based on where do we see these things going with interest rates and whatnot? And how does that affect our overall approach? And really, real, real, real quick, jump into that. But as you're walking into deals and you say, oh, that deal doesn't work because those numbers suck. Ask two questions, which Chris, Chris just went over. Is the debt assumable? And is the owner willing to sell or finance? Then you have a new set of variables to work with. Maybe they'll finance the entire project at 4% because they want their price. Maybe the debt's assumable so that you're actually paying. You can pay 2021 prices because you're getting 2021 debt. So just anytime you're entering a deal, those should be the first two questions before you discount the deal or the no, project not working. We know a guy in town here who's selling off his portfolio uh, one by one. It's fully paid off. So he's doing seller financing to the buyers when he sells them. Um, they're paying some type of amortized schedule, but that basically means he doesn't have to worry about a lot of capital gains because he's not making a yep. lot of principal every year. And simultaneously, he's investing in new upcoming deals, getting passive write-offs. So he's actually getting write-offs to go against all these slow matriculated or, uh, or uh, slow gains that he actually is feeling. I mean- I don't know what the percentage would be, but he, he's he's taking on gains at a slower rate because he's amortizing over 10, 15, 20 years, but he also has the write-off. So he's not paying anything on capital gains. Like they sound like unicorns, but they don't happen often, but they're out there. So mm -hmm. those, two, those two questions, those two questions are huge. Um, what to do with interest rates? I don't, I've had this question so many times, like I don't care. And I don't mean to be flippant about it, but I, I kind of want to joke about it, but like, if the deal makes sense at the current interest rates, I think you're in a better scenario than you were th three years ago. Yeah, I mean, of course. If the deal works at 3.5%, great, but gosh, dang, a lot of deals work at 3.5% interest rate. If the deal works at 7.5% interest, then dang, that's a good deal. Mm -hmm. So I think you're in a better position because right now it's almost like getting into real estate eight years ago when they were in the sixes. And then all of a sudden you buy it and you hold it. And then all of a sudden these go down to the fives and the fours. And just by the organic uh, decrease in interest rates, you see an organic decrease in cap rates, which, which increases the value of your assets. So I think right now is the time to buy. All right, crystal ball. So what, what is today? Mm -hmm. It's uh, December 27th, 2023. This will be a, a fun way so we can make fun of each other next year. What are like going conventional interest rates gonna be? I'm not gonna say what's so for, what's, what's this? When you go to a bank on a 25 year debt, you know, five, seven year fixed, 
what are you going to see a lot of in a year from now? Competitive banks right now are in the sevens commercial. Yeah. You can get maybe some high sixes. Um, a lot of them in the eights, but like competitive banks are in the sevens. Um, upper sevens, but yeah, trickling down to seven and a half kind of. We've yeah. gotten eights. I heard of some local credit unions and stuff doing the high sixes, but like you're, you know, I'm just trying to go average here. Uh, a year from now, I think that'll be down at least a point. Okay. At least. Now look, it's just two dudes talking about cold plunges in the basement, but all the experience I have from basically studying everybody that I watch, mm -hmm. people much smarter than us, um, are saying, I mean, gosh, the Fed came out and said that they're going to decrease rates. Mm -hmm. So there's a good place to start. Do you trust the Fed? I don't trust anybody in government, just telling you that now. Um, fair. Uh, <laughs> fair. I can't. Uh, I agree with you in a point. They told us the truth that. when they increased it. Um, I think they'll decrease rates. And I also think it just so happens to be an election year. Yeah. And uh, they can say that they're. All right. Here's even more fun. Who's going to be our new president and when's inauguration? Who's going to win the election by now? <laughs> that's, I have no clue. Mark Wahlberg. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I, sometimes I heard the rock might run. No, that's a joke. No, no, that's not my joke. I literally, I actually heard that. Because Do you think he could win? We've already, I'm trying to stay diplomatic in these conversations. No, this is fun. I'm trying to extract it. This will be fun to You're listen to, to in a year. Me up. We've already, we've already shown that all you need is a TV personality to win president. So uh, maybe the rock does win. I, I don't know. I, I don't, if the rock won though, I think he'd be really, this is so stupid. I hope he says, Where, you smell is, what the rock is cooking. This hypothetical is dumb. You, because you smell what the president's cooking. I'll, I'll, everything we've been talking about is like educated. And then he elbows somebody. <laughs> It's like educated. He just to takes help out Biden or whoever, or his opponent, you know, if he's against Trump or Biden, he just elbow drops him. The rock. <laughs> if the rock, if the rock was voted in. And Tulsi Gabbard. I uh, like Tulsi. Then I'll say that. he's smart enough to like he has in his entire career. He surrounds himself with people that are smarter than him. And I don't think our government would, I, I think we would basically not lose a step because he would surround himself with people that are better than him. He would not get a brain. Because he has a brain. He wouldn't go rogue and keep the entire country guessing on what the f what's going to come out of it. Yeah, but mouth. he'd still get sucked into the Illuminati. Like, he'd have to. Like This is getting deep. I'm just saying, there's that weird cult these presidents jump into, and they're like, oh, shoot, I guess I'm not in control anymore. I'm not ready for this episode. We need, we need to be in Peru. I know. I mean, this was... <laughs> I was just trying to get there, you know. <laughs> I could, I could love to go down this. I do just want to hear it in a year from now who we think is going to be president. Um, I don't think it's going to be Biden or Trump. See, but who? Man, that's fifty-fifty though. But who? Yeah, I don't. <laughs> if it's not one of those two, then maybe like Haley. Not to, San not to Santos. Mine. No, he's he's out, man. Um, so weirdo. Okay, okay, so. Uh, uh, did we get, did we get off the question? Is that what we're talking about? The Illuminati? No, sorry. I just had to just, we, we, we were talking about rates. So a point down in a year. Does any so. of this matter because the Illuminati runs the world? Is that the, really the next question? Well, if there's enough inflation and bricks taking over, I mean, that, that is real, but we, but I am way too stupid to be talking about that. Yeah, I don't know. And the effect of monetary stuff. policy. Um, best case, worst case. I think we handled some of these questions. I, I really do hope I answered that last question about interest rates and NOI and stuff. It doesn't affect us at all. Now, Here's how it has affected our, our our deals. And we've been open on this anytime I talk to any of our investors. Um, we underwrote. So a lot of times when we underwrite deals, we underwrite it to increase about 15 
uh, BIPs are like 0 0.15, 0 0.12, 0 0.10 uh, cap rate each year. So if you bought it at a four cap, the next year would be worth 4.1 and the next year would be 4.2. And that's what Fannie and Freddie were doing when they're stress test, because basically you hold it for 10 years and you bought it at a four cap. So maybe you think you're, it'll be worth a five cap on the back end. And these are real numbers. You start to get larger properties. That is actually the conservative way to underwrite. That's how Fannie and Freddie underwrote things. It, it wasn't even close over the last 18 months. Mm -hmm. I mean, rates jumped two, three points. Cap rates jumped two, three points through the world for a loop. So what that has done to our deals is that uh, for our deals, if we said, look, we think we're going to refinance this deal in four or six years, uh, maybe we'll refinance that deal in six or eight years. Now, the good thing for us, and I, I would openly admit this, and I've, I've admitted this on the webinars for our deals, but like whenever we tell somebody, hey, you're, you're, you're invested in this deal for four to six years, and we think we'll refinance that deal at that time frame, we know internally that we could probably do it in two or three years, yep. but you never want to tell the investor two or three years. Cause then as soon as you get to three years in two days, you have that one guy who says, where's my money? You said three years. And so if they're okay with four to six years and you perform in three years, then of course you're, you're the hero uh, if you perform in six years. So I, we have that built in conservatively anyway, but the way it's affected our deals is that if we were going to refinance a deal in three or four or five years, it may be four or five or six years now because the interest rates are so high and then we'll get back down to where they were, but that's okay because our investors for the most part are long-term anyway. So they just keep receiving their cash flow. They always received, if not better. And they just have to wait a year or two to refinance. Yeah. I, I guess one more thing though, that that's, that's a change is in the distributions. If maybe there's a lot of excess cash and we want to pay out, maybe we've hit 15% returns on a property. We're not going to pay out that 15% because maybe we have the note due in four years. Four years, we think values will be up, things have leveled out, et cetera. However, if you look at the property and refinancing now, it's a pretty significant decrease in the valuation. That's just how things are valued now. It, it's caught up. It's basically caught up mm -hmm. where cap rates have adjusted. Um, so just in case there is some sort of cash and refi, which we don't think, but I think just having additional excess cash just in case is important. Um, in case you do run across that situation, meaning you don't, you don't run the well dry. Yeah. I, I think I know what deal you're probably talking about and it's, it's crushing right now. Yeah. It's doing great. And you know, we're asked, there's a bunch of excess cash. Why aren't you distributing it? Well, you know, I think it's just important to be, if on these larger deals, if you, if you distribute too much of it and what if the property valuation is flat or something like that and you have to get higher lever debt or lower lever debt, you just, you just don't know. I think it's important to have some cash. And now there's so many high yield savings accounts that you, at least you can get four or 5% on your money sitting there. Well, I think it's a good blanket statement to say to anybody, whether you have as many units and investors as we do, or unless you're doing a duplex or doing it by yourself, like the amount of reserve capital or safety net capital you used to kind of hold back, you should probably double that because you have no idea what's going to happen. Uh, we're going through budgeting with some of our PMs. Uh, I was just looking at today. They have it, uh, they have it built in to have income go up 3% which there are some areas of the country that are actually going down, mm -hmm. um, but they have expenses 5%. Yeah. They, they just, they, they just, they've already seen it happen. They know. So, you know, when you underwrote it two years ago and it was 3%, now the expenses are, we can't change material and labor and what's happened. So you should start putting aside stuff to be conservative and safe, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, that's outside of uh, interest. I mean, insurance taxes, depending on where you are. I mean, insurance is going up everywhere. Brutal significantly the, the here's a here's a bet it's not going to be in a year from now but three years from now there's going to be a major disruption to the insurance industry don't know what it's going to look like 
But right now it's, it's a non-functioning system. I think the insurance companies are getting a little rocked and the rates have gone up so much. I, I feel like there's going to be some fundamental change, some new Amazon or Uber of insurance that comes out. I just feel that, I mean, some places it's doubling and then people aren't even getting paid out their claims. There's just all these numerous things that are happening that I think there needs to be a big disruption to the insurance industry. I wouldn't mind a disruption about those unpaid claims. I cannot stand the providers. I mean, we have two deals right now. There've been like 18 months we've been back. Dude, it's phenomenal. It's a joke. And one of the questions I have from them, who's a provider? Oh, is it? Oh, I know they're provider. I just want to, can I, can I name them? Are they, are they a provider for anything else? So uh, this is the ridiculousness that we had a water leak in the roof of a proven hail claim. They've already admitted to it. They know the hail, there was a hail storm. They know there's a uh, damage from it. They want pictures from 18 months ago of the carpet that got wet. So after that, they approved. After they approved that we could update the unit. By the adjuster. Because it's been 18 months. It's just sitting there vacant. Like you're killing us taking so long to make such an easy decision. And so we replaced the carpet and, we've, and they're like, oh, you don't have any pictures from 18 months ago of the carpet that was wet. So we're not going to re replace it for you, even though we were told to do it by them. It is so frustrating. And, and what they do is they funnel through adjusters. Like, so there's a new adjuster every three months. So they have to restart the case. I heard there's a, you know, once again, now back to the Illuminati talk, but lots of these companies won't respond in email, um, especially in these larger claims, or they'll wait to like the last day before like a, a claim is exempt or something. And then they'll send a response. Like the insurance companies know what they're doing to not have to pay. So do banks. I'm not going to name any names. There are two banks who upset me very much in the last year, a week before close or a week after close, just completely changing their terms. Yeah. We have a loan right now that we still haven't gotten that, well, they made it right, but that's very frustrating. Um, we're getting towards the end here. And yeah, I, I think we crushed it, man. I think we answered most of the questions. Um, I know what's going to happen. We're going to get 20 more questions and we'll have the second one, which is fine. Yeah. If anybody has any questions, feel free to reach out to me or Chris, both on Instagram, Facebook, um, and give us any suggestions for any uh, podcast. Hey, if uh, you're listening now, you've made it this far, please hmm. go rate and give us a five-star rating. Please subscribe, YouTube. Give Chris a nice comment. Thumbs up. Give me something nice. He, he, he needs it. I, I'm good. You can, you can say bad things about me, but Chris really needs the compliments lately, guys. I don't, I don't need it. He found a couple extra gray hairs and it's really hurting his ego. They're coming full fledged. At least I have the hair. This might come out for your birthday too. I mean, it's going to time it'll, up with it'll it. It'll come out before that. <laughs> uh, if you also leave a comment, who do you want to see? Um, questions are great, but who, who do you want to see on the podcast? I think that's really important. Look, we do these podcasts for, for a few reasons. Yes. It helps with social media. Of course it helps with our business too. Um, yeah, I think it's selfish. Like we love the people we have on. Mm -hmm. We learn it's so fun. much. It's great. But I actually know this cause I've lived it. It's a way to give back. It's a way to help people learn, uh, what to do. I mean, gosh, I, some of the things that have changed my life the most I've learned on podcast or YouTube or whatever. It, it's, it's, I love providing information to people so they can learn and, and take advantage of what we've already done. Yeah, it's great. I mean, I started off listening to Brandon Turner and now, you know, I can text him uh, and get answers from him. So podcasts make a difference. They'll, they'll change it. So, all right, without further ado, Chris and Colin with Keeping It Real Estate.